Hello there, and welcome to Successfully Depressed, and I'm your host, Carrie Finsand. This show is all about helping solopreneurs navigate mental and physical health in life and business. Today's guest is Tara Nesser of Level Up. She is a seasoned people operations leader with a rich background in hyper-growth tech startups and a track record of success in talent strategy, training, and development. Tara understands the critical importance of investing in the right individuals to drive productivity and achieve success. However, she has also witnessed the challenges faced by emerging leaders and the unfortunate outcomes of failing teams. Fortunately, Tara is here to share her insights and and introduce ways to empower founders, leaders, and managers to cultivate a high-achieving mindset and acquire the essential skills necessary to build exceptional teams and businesses. Join us as Tara's firsthand experience confirms the profound impact of motivated collaboration. Now let's get to the interview. We met maybe a a dozen years ago when we both worked at Groupon. And I've had the privilege of interviewing a number of other Groupon folks on this uh, podcast as well. It's been a it's been a good place for you to find interesting people to talk about in different descriptions. And a lot of it I'm reminded by just connecting them reconnecting with people on LinkedIn like you. So mm-hmm. wanted to bring you on the show because of your background with people management, developing people, um, recruitment, and then kind of finding your way and kind of either starting a business or, you know, starting a career or changing a career. So that's a lot of mm-hmm. to to digest. We don't have to get through it all, but those are just some of the 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 things I was thinking about just based off of your what you've done in your in your career. Yeah. Those are those are all things that I have dabbled in. That's that's for certain. And so before we get kind of into all the questions, let's kind of get a little background about kind of, you know, you went to school and then out of school, you know, where you went, to, where you went to your first job and kind of how that led to you where you are today and, um, and having your own company. Yeah, absolutely. So I went to IU, go Hoosiers. Yeah. Uh, and from, uh, from Indiana university, I moved to Chicago. I moved to Chicago, uh, with no job with like a thousand bucks in my pocket, a car with no hubcaps and no place to live. So I really took a chance on myself, but I knew I wanted to be a big city gal. So I uh, drove up here, lived on a couch. It was 2008, so it was sort of the height of the recession. There weren't any jobs. My degree was in psychology. I really wanted to work in, in social work, actually. Um, so I did a lot of interviewing for places like Planned Parenthood, for YWCA. I, I had a degree in psychology and a minor, a minor in women's studies. So I was hoping that my career would would merge the two. However, life happened. uh, And with the recession and there not being a ton of jobs available, I took what was available to me, which started as a retail position at Club Monaco, making like $9.25 an hour. And I was very proud of myself because I negotiated from $9.15 to $9.25 and felt like a real smart college gal. Um, Yeah. Yeah. how I lived on 925 an hour is beyond me. So I was eventually I was able to get a job at the Chicago Tribune in sales. Uh, I was selling <laughs> job postings in the newspaper in Orlando. Uh, so if you put all those three things together, there were no jobs. Orlando was 
a dying market and the newspaper industry was also a dying market. So I spent most of my time just getting hung up on. Um, and I had to make, you know, 80 calls a day and 75 of those were me getting hung up on. Um, but I was able to sort of, you know, uh, I was able to get a taste of a career in sales. And from there I was, um, introduced to Groupon. So that's where I met you. And as you know, Groupon was, uh, just all the rage in Chicago and, and really in, in the country. Um, and, I took my sales experience and applied it to this new startup world. And when I was at Groupon, I really got a taste for the startup world. You know, everybody sort of being in it together, boots on the ground, building something from the ground up. And I became really addicted to that type of environment. And I spent the rest of my career in startups. So uh, from Groupon, I went to another startup called Trunk Club. I was the 25th employee. And I was able to work at Trunk Club through so many various phases of growth. Uh, we, we started as a small little team in a small little office. And by the time I left, we were over 1,000 employees and had been acquired by Nordstrom. So I really got a taste for what it was like to work at, work at this company at so many different various stages and see the growing pains within the stages. Um, and that, and also at, at, at uh, Trunk Club, I was able to transition from a sales role to a people role. And that's where I sort of started working in the talent development space. And I really, really loved the talent development space. It felt like I had sort of found home. And I got to scratch this itch of um, almost bringing back my psychology, my passion for psychology back into a sort of more corporate environment. So I was able to understand people and how they operate and how to unlock their talent. And I really liked that. So I, I wanted to sort of expand my people experience, which is what led me to my next job, which was a, a, a startup that specialized in recruiting. And I thought it would be really interesting to learn a new component of the, of the talent journey. So I, I wanted to learn what that sort of first step in the life cycle of an employee was like and learn how to become a recruiter, which is what I did. And at that job, I learned executive recruiting, and then I also became their director of people operations, or their head of people operations, rather. And um, I was there during, I was there for a few years. I was there through COVID. And during COVID, you know, when the world was turned upside down and we were all at home, I was given the opportunity to have a lot of space to think, to reflect, and to really get really clear on what my values were and what relationship I wanted to have with work sort of long-term. And, and through that time, I, I realized that I wanted to go off and uh, I wanted to go off on my own. And I wanted to do the things that I was most passionate about, which is really unlocking the talent and potential in others. That led me to starting my own business, which is Level Up Talent. That's what I do now. I've been doing it for almost three years. Yeah, that was good. That was good. <laughs> right to the point, you know, it's interesting because you, you circle back to psychology and you're talking about, uh, you know, being like a social worker, uh, you've, you've applied the psychology, you know, sales is psychology. And then really I, mm -hmm. I would say, you know, in managing people psychology. So it makes sense. I can see that from your perspective of, of working with people is what you wanted to do. And you're kind of going back to your roots and you're taking, kind of what your virtues are, you know, that's one thing I've been doing the last year or so myself It's kind of looking at what is it that, what are the virtues, what, you know, what excites you in the morning and, and what is, yeah. 
I think we all have look at work as, you know, it, it, for some people, that's all they, their persona is all it is, is work. And, and you got to be careful about that. I know when I had a startup company, Mm -hmm. my persona was this, was this tech beer guy forever. And, but then when the company was sold and everything, then it's like, you know, who am I? Like, how does this, you know, what does this mean? What do I really want to do? And, and so for me, it's working with people and, and kind of beating out the field. So I'm glad that you were able to figure that out during COVID. Like a lot of other people have kind of figured out whether it was something they wanted to do, or they were maybe forced because of, you know, layoffs and everything. Um, Well, I think you bring up two really important points there. Um, The, the, I I think the the point of your identity being attached to your work is something that is really interesting to me. In fact, I, I, I feel like a lot of my clients come to me for that reason, especially if you grew up in tech or if you grew up in the startup world, your whole identity is wrapped up in your work. A lot of your community is wrapped up in your work. A lot of your friendships are formed in your work. And so when you're left, you know, I think what COVID did for a lot of us is it it gave us this new space from work, which was really, really hard for a lot of people. But it did kind of make us wake up and go, what do I, what do I want, not just out of my work, but out of my life? And what role do I want work to play in my life? And that was a really important question for me to answer which sort of led me to being able to make the leap and start my own thing because I, I wanted work to play a different role in my life than it had previously. Yeah. And that's, that's a, a big leap of faith too. When you kind of at that point of, you know, choosing, do I want to work for some, with someone else or do I not, do I want to work mm-hmm. for myself? And yeah. now obviously you went through that exercise for yourself and you're also doing mm-hmm. that exercise for, um, in your consulting business with businesses mm-hmm. and in individuals on kind of what they want next. So maybe you can kind of dive into kind of a, a higher level process of, hey, I'm looking to make a change in my career. Maybe it's something completely different, or I'm looking to, hey, I'm more interested in starting my own thing. I've been kind of you know, doing this side hustle, let's say for a while. And, mm-hmm. and now it's, it's been kind of a hobby. And I want to make it whatever that is. Uh, maybe it's something that you're making, you have your own apparel line for fun or something. Now you want to just go mm-hmm. for it. So maybe you could kind of talk about that process. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I, and it's important to note when I was, when I was talking about my backgrounds, I didn't mention that uh, part of my, my current business is I am a coach. So I'm a, I'm a certified coach and I do, leadership coaching and career coaching. And a lot of the, a lot of um, the people, a lot of people come to me for that exact reason. They want to figure out what, uh, what's next for them in their career, either to your point, they were forced to because they were laid off or they want to just um, be really intentional about their next step. So when exploring to whether or not to do your own thing or to go work for another company, I think it really comes down to values. What do you value most? And what are you optimizing for in your career and your life? So in anything that you do, one of the things I say to my clients a lot is like, there's going to be hard. So you have to choose your hard. Which hard do you want? So if the thing that you value is, if you value flexibility, if you value passion, if you value purpose, 
that might lead you to starting your own business. However, the hard that you're going to choose at the beginning is stability, right? That's what you're going to sacrifice. So does your desire for freedom, does your desire for passion, does your desire for purpose outweigh your desire for stability? If the answer is no, it's probably uh, a good idea to think about prioritizing stability and finding something that allows for you to have more comforts in life. Either option's totally fine. It really just comes down to what's most important to you, knowing that there will be trade-offs in whatever direction you head. I totally agree with that. I think it's that kind of that teeter-totter of, you know, you mm-hmm. don't want to go too far one way. Like you want to have, you know, f- flexibility but you also need some stability. And so if you're too far one way or the other way, then it's just, there's this major imbalance. You kind of have to find it where it's equal or maybe not even equal, but just it, it fits in with what you want it to be exactly. Cause if you're, you know, it's like too much of anything like overindulging, you know, if you like chocolate, like mm. me, you know, one <laughs> cookie could learn it could turn into three. So, you know, you yeah. have to kind of just kind of figure out what works for you. One of the things with that, I kind of want to dive into as well is you had a post on LinkedIn recently kind of talking about job hopping and, you know, for basically hiring managers to look at why they're job hopping because they could have came from a a bad environment, kind of a toxic environment. Maybe there's no room for growth in their place of work. Uh, There could be a lot of different reasons. So maybe you can kind of expand upon your thinking on that post. Yeah. So I'll give a little context. Um, Yeah, I posted that I think it's ridiculous (laughs) that employers judge people based on job hopping. When I was in recruiting, this is something I saw all the time. Candidates would be completely disqualified almost immediately if they had stints of under a year on their resume. So if they worked at a company for under a year, they were immediately, you know, immediately judged. And it was something that frustrated me a lot when I was in recruiting. And now that I'm on the other side, working with candidates who are looking for jobs, it frustrates me even more because I have, I have sort of an inside window into why people leave jobs and people a lot of the times leave jobs because of a failure on the company's part, not a failure on their own. Right. So they could have a really bad boss. They could have a toxic work environment. Maybe they don't have the resources they need to be successful. Um, You know, maybe the company doesn't provide a lot of growth opportunities. And my perspective is that if a candidate leaves a job, even if it's under a year, for one of those reasons, I think that should be applauded, right? I don't think that they should be judged or discriminated against because they made a choice to leave a job that wasn't the right fit for them under this, you know, sort of amount of time that somebody decided is the right amount of time to be in a job. So I hear candidates a lot. I'll be working with a candidate and they'll be in a really bad work environment. And they'll say, well, I need to stick it out because I I have to stay at least a year so I don't look like a job hopper on my resume. And that just feels really unfair and unfortunate that people have to stick out these and stick it out in these environments that aren't good for them because of some sort of arbitrary timeline that somebody decided was the right timeline to be in a job. 
So my my thought behind that post was that instead of just disqualifying a candidate, we should be curious. We should ask the right questions to understand why did a person leave the job? And was it truly because of something, uh, you know, performance issue on the candidate's part? Or was it a failure on the company's part? So my, my, my hope was that it would um, get people to rethink the way that they qualify candidates from viewing their resume or their LinkedIn profile alone. And it did. It, got, I, it actually got a lot of interesting conversation going. And I think, it, I think it sparked a lot of curiosity for people. So I was happy to see that. I think one thing too is the job hopping actually happens a lot in the tech industry uh, in general. Yeah. It's way different than a lot of other industries, which I've noticed. And in, in myself, uh, I worked, I left tech for a while, went into the construction world doing some marketing for a construction supply company. And it was everything about it was different. You know, it was kind of an older school mm-hmm. mentality. Um, I would say the industry for sure was more of a, a good old boys kind of club kind of mentality mm-hmm. mentality and stuff. And, uh, technology wasn't as braced as much. And, and, uh, so the culture was a lot different. So I think that's also yeah. one thing to look at is, uh, some industries look at these things differently than others. Um, yeah. and you know, if you're a software engineer, it's a very hot position to have because it's in such demand. And if you worked at, you know, Google or something, or you were only there for six months, you're probably getting recruited by Microsoft and some other big companies that, you know, have interest in you. So I think that's kind of the caveat with, with some of this, which I find is like, you know, again, each industry is a lot different, um, and kind of how they work. Um, And you're, and you're right about the tech industry. I mean, people, People are, careers are changing. You know, careers aren't what they once were. People don't stay in jobs for 10 years and then go uh, to the next company so that they can get the next title, right? Like, uh, we don't have these really linear paths like we used to see. People's careers are of shorter stints. They pivot a lot. They take chances. They move around. They freelance. They contract. So I think we need to embrace the way that people are experiencing work today versus how they were experiencing work, you know, maybe 10 years ago or, or beyond. Yeah. And that definitely, you know, trickles down from, from management, from leadership, uh, and how things have been adapting from the different generations of, of how Mm -hmm. people interact. One of the Instagram posts that you, uh, you posted sometime in the last year kind of talked, went into this little detail and kind of talking about, uh, different generations of, of mm-hmm. uh, millennials that I believe you're talking about, you know, dealing with, you know, the generation above them, like the Gen X is maybe a little bit more mm-hmm. uh, to the point on things and kind of, and you have to tough through things or whatever. Generation Z, they're really about uh, find what they really want to do and, mm-hmm. you know, having a fulfilling life and having flexibility and everything. So there's this kind of, a little bit of a culture shock and as things change and I know as myself getting mm-hmm. older and stuff too, I've, I've seen it too. And, and, and trying to, to learn how to adjust to different ways. So we all have different ways that we communicate with each other. And, and so it's important to understand how each person communicates. Yeah. I love the idea of, of generational leadership and understanding how different generations think about leadership. Most of the clients that I work with are in the millennial category. 
So, um, and, and most of them are in like, you know, director to executive level. Uh, and, and what I, what I hear from them, the conflict is that, um, their bosses, so the generation above them have a style of leadership that looks a little bit more like, um, brute force and result, you know, results over anything else. And we don't have time for feelings and, uh, we just need to get stuff done. And then the generation below them is really, really pushing the boundaries on how we think about uh, our the way that we bring empathy and compassion and balance into the workplace. And so I think millennial leaders are in a little bit of a tough position in that they have to sort of like appease the leaders above them. And they also have to lead to the people below them and the people below them are saying, that's not going to work for me. I I need empathy. I need balance. I need you to hear me. I need you to see me. I need equity. Um, And I think it's a, I think it's an interesting juxtaposition that those millennial leaders are in. And I also, I know that Gen Z gets like Gen Z. Yeah. Um, I know Gen Z gets like a lot of slack. I think what they're doing is awesome. I think Gen Z is really pushing us to rethink our relationship with work. And I think we're going to thank them 10 years from now. Well, I think the one thing that I, I like about some of the change is, is thinking about what is your work? What does it mean to you? Most of us need to work and you need a, a job to provide for yourself and your family and such. So not everyone has the the luxury, we'll say, of really choosing something that they want to do, or mm-hmm. it could be a very a big uphill battle just financially for them or just whatever cir- circumstance that they're in. There's a lot of different perspectives for people out there. But mm-hmm. what I do like as a mental health advocate, I like how mental health is getting more pushed into companies. Mm-hmm. And tech companies are more of an early adopter for this type of uh, concept, which is great. Mm-hmm. Often is because they, they have the kind of cool, you know, shiny new thing that they're selling or, you know, the, the hot app of the week or something. So everyone's excited mm-hmm. about it. And uh, typically they're, you know, well-paying jobs and everything. And the company is doing, making lots of money. So, or, or they have tons of VC money, um, mm-hmm. but they're creating, they're trying to create a culture where there's, you know, flexibility with, with time off, working from home, mental health days, volunteer days, and all those things are definitely important to me. And for some companies, they don't, they don't offer those things. And in other industries, mm-hmm. once again, if you look at some of these other industries, so I'm hoping to see, you know, this concept of kind of well-being for yourself, including work, you know, the whole balance of work and life. So in your experience in working with, I guess, more millennial uh, demographic, have you dealt with any, maybe let's say they're, they're an employee, maybe they're even their manager, but maybe mm-hmm. they want to deal with mental health and they don't know how to talk to their bosses. And it, they're mm-hmm. scared because that's one of the challenges. If you have some type of mental health issue, or maybe you're having a crisis, you mm-hmm. don't want to necessarily talk to management because uh, you don't know what they're going to say, or, you know, you don't want to necessarily talk to HR because HR is they're really out there for the business. That's the number one focus for them. Mm-hmm. Typically, is the the business. So 
how do people talk if they have some type of mental health issue and, you know, not be scared that it's going to reflect on their position or getting laid off or things like that? Yeah, it's such a great question and such an important question. And you are right in that, you know, I think there's been so much progress that's been made on mental health and work, but the stigma is definitely real. And so you asked, do I have people that have struggled with bringing their mental health concerns to the surface at work? The answer is absolutely. Uh, It is still something that people have a ton of fear around. And um, it is something, a lot of times it's something they don't even want to admit to themselves, right? They think I can just tough this out. I can tough this out. I can tough this out. Um, So the first thing I'll say is don't wait. Don't wait to talk to somebody internally, because if you wait too long, inevitably, a breakdown will happen, and what you will end up needing from your work will be far bigger and more impactful than it would have been if you would have got the support you needed earlier on. So even though it's scary, my first recommendation is to not wait. So that's number one. The second thing is um, to do your research. So every state has different laws on the types of uh, support that they have to provide to employees. Understand kind of what your rights are and have that, that knowledge in your back pocket at all times. Knowledge is power here. The second thing to do research on is what are your company policies? So uh, most companies... Well, I don't know most. A lot of companies will have policies and um, benefits surrounding mental health. So you want to know what those things are before heading into the conversation. So step one, arm yourself with knowledge. Understand what your rights are. Number two is I do think you have to check in on the safety of the organization. So do you work in an environment that openly talks about mental health? Has your boss ever talked about mental health? Um, Has there been vulnerability that's been expressed in leadership? All of those signals signal an environment of safety. Uh, If the answer is yes, an environment of safety, then I think you can go to your manager and feel comfortable in that. If If the answer is no, and the culture does not reflect a safe environment, Um, I do think that HR is your best route. Now, I I hear you on, um, I hear you on HR leaders are there to protect the business, but man, we've seen tremendous strides in the world of HR where there are emerging people leaders that truly do care about their people. I work with them every day. So I think that even the position of HR in organizations is starting to shift and it is becoming more of a protective resource for people. So, um, if you feel like your organization has made that shift, I would start with HR. So once you know where you're going, either your manager or your HR, now we have to talk about like, okay, how do I actually have this conversation? And I would say the way that we have this conversation is really kind of a three-step process. So one, uh, what's going on with you? You can be as detailed or as vague as you want, but high level, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm suffering from depression. I'm suffering from anxiety. Uh, number two, what impact does that have on you? And what impact does it have on the work? And number three, what is the specific support that you need from your organization? 
So those three things, um, that sort of framework for having the conversation will make it feel like a very, a very uh, practical and solution oriented conversation around a topic that can feel really heavy and emotional for you. So a lot of times when I'm working with clients, if I give them a a practical framework that gets down to the facts, it takes a lot of that emotional burden off of them and they can feel more confident going into the conversation. So that's what I, that's what I would say. So to, to recap, uh, do your research, figure out the right person to talk to and, uh, go in with a plan for, to have the conversation that, uh, will make you feel, uh, really confident and empowered. Yeah, those are definitely, those are definitely good points. And, and, and there's, there's definitely, uh, it's, it wasn't really a blanket statement as far as HR leaders. Cause there's a lot of great HR leaders out there. Just like in anything, there's great people, there's okay people, and there's not so okay people in, in certain types of roles. I'm glad to, to hear that there are more shifts in these jobs. I do notice that in jobs that I've applied for, like even different sales jobs, they might have the Calm app, for example, that might be mm-hmm. part of it where you get a free access to that. And that's a great app. I use that app. They try to think about some different things that are helpful for people. Some of them tell you that, you know, we want you to take your time off to recharge your batteries. I think that's all really important because people might be really passionate about their job, but they need time to to recharge their batteries like everybody does. And so if they're in an environment that is supportive of you, then you'll continue on and kind of continue on to this kind of supportive nature for, let's say, business leaders and, and culture. There are a lot of organizations that are great at training. There's other organizations that are not good at training their, their employees mm-hmm. for like onboarding. I know you have experience with, with onboarding. Mm-hmm. What have you learned working in the past for different companies, doing train roles, going through train processes yourself from previous employers, and then now applying what you've learned with your level up consulting company in working with people? Yeah. So when you say training, um, <clears throat> do you mean like leadership training or onboarding? I would say first, the first thing I'm talking about here is really just the onboarding and then like the continuous support of the staffing at that organization. Yeah. Onboarding really, the quality of your onboarding program really matters for uh, the, I would say, I would say like, simply put, it, it matters for the success of your employee. But what I mean by that is how are they integrating? Uh, are they excited? Uh, you want to really capture that excitement in the, the first 90 days. Um, and do they feel uh, confident and supported going into their role? So the quality of your onboarding program is essential to ensuring that your employee is ramping as quickly as possible so they can be productive fast. I've seen so many, I mean, I've worked for startups my whole career. So like, you know, I've definitely been in jobs where you start and on day two, they're like, here's your computer, go figure it out. Um, And while like, what's really interesting about that is that companies think that they do that because it's more efficient, like, oh, just start doing the job now. But what ends up happening is that employees have to scramble for so long to figure out how to put the pieces together of the organization and understanding who to talk to and how to integrate that it actually ends up slowing down their ramp versus speeding up their ramp. So really we have to apply the like slow down to speed up method or mentality 
to thinking about how we onboard employees. So get it right on the front end so that you can speed up on the back end. And then how it relates, um, how training, you know, uh, is thought about in the employee experience is really important. I think people leave jobs for a couple of reasons. And one of those reasons is they feel like they're not growing. That's a huge reason that I hear when my clients come to me and they're like, I, I feel completely apathetic in this job. Most of the time they feel apathetic because they're not learning and they're not growing. So if you want to keep your employees really engaged, if you want to keep them motivated, you want to keep their spark alive, training and development is a great way to do that uh, because it ignites a new, it ignites a new skill set. And when people get to um, try on a new skill set, a new part of them comes to life that maybe has been dormant for a little while. So I think um, training for retention is a, a really nice strategy. Yeah, definitely. I, you know, there's been different organizations that have, uh, you know, train programs where you go through, a, a, let's say a sales training program, and then you have like a mentor for a while, and then you are connected mm-hmm. to somebody. Uh, I think that's a great idea especially often in the sales world when you do outside sales where you're kind of the CEO of your own territory, but you want to connect to the corporation. And most of my career, I've done outside sales with companies that are not based where I'm based. I like Groupon, mm. Chicago, and there's one City Search, which mm-hmm. is like Yelp before Yelp, and they're based in, in LA. And so you want to feel connected to to your team. And mm-hmm. I think it's great when you have some type of team atmosphere, you know, baked into the whole program with, with mentoring people along the way. Um, yeah. And I think that really comes from the leadership and understanding they want employees to stay there for a long time. So now we've kind of talked about yeah. kind of people who uh, are employees at an organization and trying to find their way through getting jobs or working at a company. Maybe we can now take it to the level of the executive leadership team that is the one that you know sets the the pace for the whole company and kind of mm-hmm. what you do with your consulting and, and reaching out to these to these leaders and trying to find a environment that's good for everybody in the company by leading by example. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I always i I do a lot of values work with companies. Um, so you know, going into organizations and. Uh, really designing values that the whole company can live by. And one of the things that I say is we can design these values and we can put stickers on the wall or we can have awards around these values. But if the executive team is not living those values, breathing those values, forget it. We might as well throw them out the window. So what you said about the executive team setting the tone is exactly right. It is not what you say as, as an executive. It is what you do. So if you want um, if you want to set the tone for a certain st- type of culture, you have to live that culture day in and day out. And uh, one of the things that I think is interesting for executives is um, also realizing how much your words and actions matter. I'm not sure that every executive understands the weight of their words or understands the weight of their actions. And so a lot of times we can see a lot of sort of flippant behavior or flippant words that really penetrate through an organization and cause damage because the executive doesn't totally understand their power. They don't understand how much um, their role within the organization matters to people. 
So I would say that that's um, what I would think about as in terms of leading by example is really understanding the weight of your words and the weight of your actions and being really intentional about those words and about those actions. And that is a lot of the work that I do uh, with leaders is helping them get intentional about how they show up, how they show up in the in the workplace and it really in life, right? Because leadership skills um, really transfer to, to everything you do and every interaction you have. And I think intentionality and all of that is super important. In fact, when I started my business, um, you know, I did a lot of executive interviews. So I interviewed a lot of executives that I really respect. And I asked them, you know, if I were to create a leadership development company, what is the one thing that you think I should focus on? And this leader who I really love and respect, it's like just one of, I think one of the best leaders in Chicago, if not in the country, said to me, um, if you could teach anybody anything, it would be to be intentional in how you show up. You should show up every day wanting to be the best boss anybody has ever had. That really stuck with me. Um, And so what I try to do is help leaders become the best boss, the best leader, the best version of themselves that they ever have been. Yeah, that, I like the have the intentions for for your thought process because when you're someone running a company, you have a lot a lot on your plate. And mm-hmm. when I had a, a very small company and just a few people that worked for me, I often was in my own head, you know, just trying to figure mm-hmm. out how do I make payroll, how do I do this, how to do that, and not you know mm-hmm. not always thinking about the the person. So I think that's really an important thing to do. It also kind of makes me think about when I was in college, I was really into leadership and I did basically a leadership focus. And one of the forms of leadership that I always liked was transformational leadership. And, you know, basically mm-hmm. it's kind of what we've been talking about. It's, you know, you practice what you preach, you, you live by example and your value is basically tied to helping other people out. You want to see others succeed. So you're, maybe you're the person running mm-hmm. the company and you have people who started the company in lower positions and then they kind of work in their way up. But if you train them over time, you empower them, you help foster them, then they're going to want to be there a lot longer. And so it's just kind of this whole okay. kind of cyclical thing where maybe it starts at the top, but it's the people on the top are also listening to everyone from the middle to the bottom because it's just this whole cycle of knowledge and if you don't have yeah. that, then you have these information silos where everyone's not really truly connected and they feel you know, left out and everything. Yeah. Well, what you're talking about there is really a culture of trust, right? If there's a culture of trust, you can really strengthen those communication lines and break down those silos because people feel safe communicating. They feel safe that if they communicate upward, it's going to go somewhere. Uh, people upward feel like if I communicate downward, it's not going to be taken offensively, right? They, there's a lot of there's a lot of faith that everyone has each other's backs, and that is the the best way to ensure that those silos don't, you know, those silos don't happen. So, you know, if you, if you're a leader and you want to learn more about this, I know you have a course, and I believe it's. When you realize you're the adult in the room, yeah, it says it's uh, yeah. when you realize the adult in the room is you. Oh, that's a, yeah, yeah, um, that exactly. 
And that yeah. makes me laugh and think about doing startups before too. And, and you know, like, oh, I am an adult. Maybe yeah. you could talk a little bit about what that process is on a higher level. And, uh, you know, if someone's yeah. looking for that type of service, what they would get out of it. Yeah. The name is funny, but it was, it was, uh, it was born out of the idea that a lot of times in startups and tech companies, um, you're looking around going, who's the adult in the room? Who's the adult in the room? And then you realize, oh, wait, that's, that's me. And I'm in this big position and I'm wearing these big shoes and I'm stretched and I have to figure it out. And people are looking to me and that can feel really scary. So the program was designed to address the very specific needs of emerging leaders that are stepping into new big shoes for the first time. And they need to gain the confidence to be successful, but they also need tools, right? So um, I designed this program to give people really actionable, a really actionable toolkit so that when they leave, they can apply things on day one and be better leaders on day one. So the program really addresses, you know, four things, uh, intentionality, transitioning from a player to a coach, understanding how to balance compassion and accountability. Uh, learning how to manage through change and turbulence and um, dealing with human emotion. So those four topics are the four topics that I hear most often in coaching. They're the topics that I experienced from 15 years in the startup world. And uh, they came up most often in a survey that I did of, of startup leaders. I think that's it. Yeah, no. Very fun. It's a day. It's a boot camp. It's super fun. The people are awesome. It is like not a stuffy training program. It is a dang good time. Yeah. I saw on your Instagram, some of the fun, different uh, manuals you had. They're, they're very bright colors. They're kind of fun fonts versus something very sterile for training because mm-hmm. no one wants to be in a room mm-hmm. and have everything very sterile. And I saw that yeah. you get a hat that says adult on it too, which I thought was hilarious. In this, whatever train that was at the time. Yeah, people love that. So that was pretty funny. That's the adult in the room hat. Yeah, 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 I think that's hilarious. And I I know that one thing that someone who took your course got away from it, they kind of posted on LinkedIn some of the things they liked about your course. And they talked about something called conscious shifting. I don't know if you could maybe briefly talk Mm. about that. Conscious shifting is my absolute favorite thing to teach. So conscious shifting is really an emotion management tool and it's moving us from a place of, you know, emotional, it moves us from a place of our emotions being in control over us to a place of making conscious choice in the way that we behave. So it does come back to this intentionality thing, but a lot of times in highly turbulent environments like startups, like tech companies, we are consumed by emotions. And we are consumed by emotions that lead us to false narratives. And those false narratives lead us to bad decisions. So conscious shifting is a tool that we can use to go from an emotional place and false narratives to conscious choice. And it's really effective. And I love it. That's great. Well, you know, I appreciate your time today, learning more about the HR world from a perspective of people who are looking to start a business to people that are working at a company to managers and leaders to better understand how to lead their people and be better managers and leaders. Where is a good place for people to find more information about you online? Yeah. So feel free to head to the website, 
Uh, it's leveluptalent.co, not to be confused with .com. You can find me on Instagram at leveluptalent. And you can also follow me on LinkedIn at Tara Nesser. I post a lot on on LinkedIn, you know, my insights from working with a variety of people. So I'd love to, I'd love to connect with anybody on there. Well, Tara, once again, I thank you for your time. I always like to end the show. Remember, you're not alone in life or business. Mm, that's really good. Thank you so much for having me, Carrie. It was really fun and it's great to reconnect with you. I appreciate it as well. All right.